So, you can always kind of tell when I've watched an episode that I really like, because I'm just kind of giddy about it. I love this episode. It's weird, because it's not like some big, deep, you know, impacting, emotional moment like Best of Both Worlds. It's not like The Inner Light. It's not like Q-Who. You know, it's not like the other episode's name I can ever think of. It's not Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra. And yet Booby Trap is in my personal best TNG list. It's up there in probably about the top 10, maybe top 20. I don't know. I haven't, I haven't gone back and listed them yet. I'm probably going to do that at the end of TNG. And ask you guys to vote on yours like I did with Voyager. But I look at this episode and it's like, oh, this is so good. I mentioned many times the VHS tapes. This one was definitely on the one I used to rewatch on a regular basis. And going back through it, it's really kind of obvious why that is in hindsight. A lot of pieces came together for this episode. It's a Geordi episode, which is great. It shows Picard off really well, which is great. The sequence of events is almost perfect. Like, the pacing in this, in this episode is fantastic. The music is Ron Jones at his finest, in my opinion. Yeah, I know, he's famous for Best of Both Worlds. But here he does some really, really good stuff music-wise. Um... And it's got really good directing by Gabriella Bouman. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, I, she has, I have a lot of respect for her. So, believe it or not, this is actually the first episode of Star Trek ever directed by a woman. Could you believe that? That's just such a weird thought. But she has a great track record. Now, she doesn't do a lot of episodes. Look at this list. I got it over here. Booby Trap, The High Ground, Suddenly Human, Disaster, Imaginary Friend, Face of the Enemy, Lower Decks, and then over in DS9, in Purgatory Shadow, and then over on Voyager, Blink of an Eye. I, I would call every one of those good at least. And I've, I could tell you right now, especially Blink of an Eye and in Purgatory Shadow, that every one of those is well-directed. She's an excellent director. I wish she'd done more work uh, with Star Trek, to be completely honest with you. So, this is a great episode. Um, I want to talk about Ron Jones and his music really quick, though, because I'm going to be doing this twice in this episode. He has this one riff that he does for the Pomerian? God, I suddenly can't think of the name of the species. The, the, the cruiser, when they find it. And it's this wonderful pseudo-echoing brass he's got going on, which then has this, these tingles of high-pitched you know, cymbals or something like that. I, I don't know the instruments. I don't know, I don't know terminology, but it gives across a vibe of ancient and ruins. It, it, I've actually, just as a test to myself, I close my eyes listen to the music from this episode, and I was picturing walking through the ruins of, like, Final Fantasy IV or something, right? Like, so any other game or something where that kind of scene is playing, and it just clicked perfectly with what was happening in the music to the actual scene in the game. It is very evocative, and that is, of course, further enhanced by the excellent directing, which I mentioned. There's some really great camera angle usage here, and they do a really good job of the enemy ship, the enemy, listen to me, the other ship's bridge, where they show very, very little of it, but they convey a lot of it with that little motion, and Patrick Stewart's acting. The man really nails the feeling of just being in awe and exuberant about examining this thousand-year-old relic. I mean, the idea of a ship that is this far intact, that still has its ion drives, and this is apparently such a rare thing that few people are even fully aware of this. Which brings me to another part of this episode. Now, this episode was actually written by a fairly large number of people overall, so I don't know who to credit this. 
We've got Ron Roman, Michael Piller, and Richard Danis, who all did the teleplay. And the original story was by Michael, Michael Wagner. Yes, that one. And Roman, the guy who worked on the teleplay as well. So I don't actually know who to credit here. But after the success of Survivors, I'm willing to say at least part of this is Wagner's influence. Because there's a lot of exposition in this episode which feels natural and properly bite-sized. Right at the beginning, there's this bit where Data and Wesley are playing chess. And Wesley just looks out and says, it's hard to believe, you know, this is the final battle. And Data says, nobody really realized, you know, I I doubt the the Bobs and the Bobinas, I can't remember the names, forgive me, walking into this realized this was going to be the final battle of their culture. From that little exchange, which is perfectly in character, perfectly natural, we get a lot of information dumped upon us. We can tell we are going through an ancient battlefield that was the final battlefield of two major spacefaring powers. Later on, we get more information, and bit by bit, these informations build up to what is effectively a full puzzle. The way Worf reacts to the ship, the way Picard gushes at it, the way they talk about, you know, these people and what they were doing and how the degradation of the chips and all that, we get a strong amount of exposition Without it feeling like someone turns the compu- to the to the camera and just says, as you know. So that's really good. And also adds to the episode. This, to, to, to include my thoughts before I start talking about the episode proper, feels like an episode where everything went right. Music, directing, acting, writing, sales, set composition, for God's sakes. Remember, they had two separate uh, non- non-standard sets they had to do with this one. The Utopia Planitia area and the alien bridge, the alien ship. And they still managed to nail all of it very, very well. Um, so Picard's enthusiasm is, is just great. And um, I'm going to talk about Jordy now. It's hard to talk about this. There's actually an A plot and a B plot to this episode. Kind of. Like, it's one of the strangest examples I've ever seen of the A-plot, B-plot thing. I still feel like the camera's a little too high. No matter what I do, it just... It is too high! It's doing the same thing again. Why does it keep doing that? There we go. I'm sorry, guys. My camera's just being weird lately. I had this problem just a bit ago. Okay, that's too low. (laughs) Sorry, guys. Ah, an inexact science. That'll do, I suppose. Can you see my hands here? Yep, okay. One of the... So there's the A-plot, which is Geordi. Geordi, Geordi's love life, Geordi's strive to come up with a solution to the dilemma. And then there's the B-plot, which is the dilemma. I say this is one of the more unusual examples of this, because they are so tightly woven, it's actually hard to really separate them. Geordi's plot wouldn't really have any strength or or power to it without the B-plot, and the B-plot would be frankly kind of disinteresting without the A-plot and the personal reactions of Geordi and Leah Brahms uh, to do it. Speaking of which, I wrote down her name. Uh, Susan Gibney really nails Leah. She actually has to play two separate roles here. She has to play robot Leah, and she has to play warm and flirtatious Leah. Let's just call it what it is. Later on, she has to play the real Leia Brahms, and even further later on, she has to play a completely separate character, where she plays an ensign. Ah, I wrote down her name. Where is it? Uh, Benteen. Or is it a lieutenant? I don't know. She plays Benteen over in the two-parter surrounding Homefront. 
<laughs> now, I'm not going to spoil what Homefront's about, but anyone who knows DS9, because you know I'm trying to avoid spoilers given the nature of DS9, and I know several people are watching DS9 for the first time over on Tuesdays. But I mention that because for those of you who have seen DS9 and have seen Homefront, you can appreciate the range this woman has to act across her Star Trek career. She does a good job of it, so credit where credit is due. So, Jordy. So, Jordy's trying too hard. That's a, a recurrent thread. In fact, it's probably the thematic point here, one I'm not sure I agree with, that you... The idea is that, you know, Jordy just constantly is struggling. He's, he's, no, I've got to make this work. I've got to make this work just right. Everything's got to be perfect. And so he ends up not being Jordy, and none of the women are interested in him. This is another good example of exposition, by the way. Credit to LeVar Burton. I really wish we gave him more episodes, because LeVar Burton really has a good way of presenting information without saying it. There's a bit where... She's like, look, this is nice. And his response is, yeah. And then she says, ah, you know, this is great and all. Yeah. But I just don't feel that way about you. Yeah. And that's all he says is just, yeah. You know, the line in the dialogue is just, yeah. But his performance and possibly Beaumont's uh, uh, directing, I'm not sure, but I, definitely at least some of this is on LeVar, uh, manages to get across all of the information that we need just like that. We get from that just how bad his love life has been going. And in the off chance you missed it, Wesley reiterates it. Uh-oh. Right? That little scene. So Jordy tries too hard. Then he goes and he just chats with Guinan. Now, I do like the construction of this. This goes back to that pacing thing. Jordy is just like, yeah, and it's great, and the weaves, and the, the ocean, and the... The, get the get the violinist. Yeah, have have some liquid, or whatever it is, mojito. I don't know. It was in a coconut. No, it's not working. Ugh. All right, whatever. And then he just goes and chats with Guinan. Once again, credit to Burton here. The man manages to act completely different in both circumstances. Now, granted, he's not romantically interested in Guinan, but that's not the point. The point is we are seeing a monumental difference between Jordy the, oh God, I desperately just want a woman to be with to Jordy, the real Jordy, because he acts like himself around Guinan, and she herself points this out, because Guinan is awesome, as she always is. You know, also, she apparently likes guys who are bald. Look, Guinan, no, no, okay. <laughs> but no, that's actually a very, very interesting point that's dropped there. I want you to remember that, because that's going to come up in season five of all things. I think it's five. It's five or six. I don't remember. It's a ways from now. That bald thing is going to come back in. I'm serious, by the way. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about. I'll, obviously, most of you do. Most people watching this are probably interested in Star Trek and probably know what I'm referencing. So, Jordy and Leah get in there. One of the things that several people said, I, I don't remember names, but several people in the uh, production of this episode both referenced the idea of the guy falling in love with his car. Uh, one of them is Michael Piller, who says that, and the other would be Peter Allen Fields. Both of them uh, referenced the idea of the guy who just can't get a girl, but man, he really loves his car, right? God, this car is awesome, blah, 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 blah. Now, I don't quite buy that. I know that that was their intent, but I think, perhaps by coincidence, another message has gotten through. 
It's not so much Geordi falling in love with the computer or the engines. It's the idea that Geordi is feeling a lot more comfortable when he doesn't feel like he has to put on that facade. In other words, the exact same thing he did with Guinan earlier. Geordi is very Geordi with Leah Brahms. I got a great example of that. He flat out argues with her. And he does it wonderfully geordi -y, right? The argument scene is great because it's him being completely comfortable and natural. He disagrees with her strongly on this point, and he's trying to make that point as fiercely as he possibly can. I can't picture Geordi on date Geordi doing that because he wouldn't feel comfortable enough to be himself enough to stand up for what he legitimately believes that strongly. So that's where that contrast really comes in and really helps showcase the difference, the presentation between the two. Again, huge credit with Susan Gibney. She really, really nails Leah in this one. And so, yeah, I mentioned right here, the argument is great. Jordy wants to react to her. Her wants her to react. Now, that's natural. We're going to have to take a... a a sidebar here for a second. But before we go into that, it makes perfect sense to me that Jordy would want the Leah Brahms hologram to have more personality. I mean, don't you want a good UI when you're playing a video game? I mean, that's functionally what he wants here. I mention that because this episode ends with him literally kissing her, which is questionable. But the episode begins with him being excited about something and being upset that the person isn't reacting to him and has shown several times that she isn't really reacting to him the way he wants her to. In other words, the interface is not good. I keep saying her, but that's actually inaccurate. This is just a program. This, this isn't a Moriarty situation. So he programs a better interface, and there you go. It is worth noting that Jordy does not, I know this is very important, he does not program a compliant interface. He does not say, computer, this is my ideal woman, make that her. Instead, what he does is he says, find all the logs of the real Leia Brahms, the personality interviews, the, the presentations, put that together into a personality profile and do that. That's important, I think, because Jordy starts to fall in love with a hologram. He even kisses her, like I said at the end. Now, I've actually talked about holographic sex and holographic relationships before. I did it more than once over on Voyager, which dealt with holograms in general a lot more because the Doctor is freaking awesome. So... I don't have much else to add to that here. As ever, within reason, no judgment. Really. You'll notice that Jordy does the kiss and then ends the program, and by all accounts, never goes back. In fact, he's very excited to meet the real one when she shows up later on, spoiler alert. But here, which is a weird episode, that one too, but anyways, but here, well, we have to talk about anthropomorphization, which I think I just pronounced wrong anthropomorphizing things is something that we do in general. It's an, it's an aspect of human psychology. We want to relate to things more directly and more personally because we as human beings understand things more directly and personally. I, I actually referenced this just last episode in the, the bonding. So I have a stuffed animal right over there on my bed. Her name is Blue. And she is a giant shark. I've shown her off several times on camera. I She's pretty much the star of my Twitter feed, right? She's a bunch of fluff, which has been stitched together, and, you know, there's some dyed wool. It's, that's, that's a stuffed animal. And I bring that up because I know that and understand that, but I still call her 
blue and refer to her as a her and, you know, basically anthropomorphize her because that's just kind of what human nature is. I suppose the point I'm trying to make is that I don't see a problem with that within reason, so long as we still acknowledge that that's a stuffed animal and that's a hologram, right? I mean, how many times, like, like the original premise was falling in love with your car, right? Although, funnily enough, it was originally supposed to be Picard, not Geordi, so I'm not sure how that would have worked. But anyways, I think that's just Patrick Stewart wanting more romance in his role, because it's Patrick Stewart. <laughs> no shade, no nothing, it's just Patrick Stewart. We'll get to that in Captain's Holiday. Anyways, so... When we have this kind of anthropomorphization, what we have is a dangerous tendency to assume uh, reactions or emotions or personalities or whatever that are not there. Jordy does make that mistake once in this episode when she says, I could do it. And he says, no, it's not humanly possible. But because this is literally just a, a UI for the computer... What she's actually saying is, I, the computer, could do it. And Jordy misses that point because of how much he has been retreating her as a person. Now, this is one of the reasons why the holodeck is actually kind of a dangerous idea from a societal perspective. And I mean that sincerely. It's something I mentioned would have been an interesting concept back in the bonding. That stuffed animal over there, that shark... I am unlikely to think of the point where that shark is actually talking back to me or is actually walking around or swimming in the air or whatever because it's a shark made of fluff, right? Like, that that's, that's a stuffed animal, and I know that. What if it was a looked just like a person, talked like a person, acted like a person, reacted like a person? Well, that distinction is going to be a lot more difficult, isn't it? Because keep in mind, the holographic Leia Brahms is an interface. It's not even an independent hologram. It is the computer specifically talking and reacting to Geordi per his request, right? That's established in this episode very strongly. So that's not a independent. This, is, this isn't like a holographic right situation. That is just the computer. And if the computer stayed circuits and a voice, Jordy probably wouldn't have started anthroping. I'm going to come up with as many new ways as, as I can to say that word. Anthroping as he could, as he did. So again, if that shark was basically a person walking around, well, first of all, that'd be really creepy and weird. But second of all, it would be a lot harder for me to mentally acknowledge the idea that that is still a stuffed animal, a shark. That is somehow projecting... I, I don't know. I know this analogy isn't great, but please bear with me, because I, I think you get my idea. This is one of the dangerous aspects of the holodeck, how easy it is to take something that isn't and present it as something that is. And how, as Star Trek will show, again, especially in Voyager, how easy it is to make something that actually is, and therefore is not being dealt with as it should be. Although, as I've said before, I am very firmly of the opinion that not every holographic character is a fully sentient sapient being. The Doctor had, in my opinion, very specific circumstances that happened over a significant period of time to develop into being a unique, independent, sentient sapient being. I really want to... I'm sorry, I've been really in the mood to watch Voyager again lately, because I keep referencing Voyager, and it's like, God, I want to watch that show again. No, i got, I got to focus on TNG for now. I'll watch Voyager again after. We'll do another rumination series of Voyager. It'll be great. 
I'm I'm kidding. Don't worry. I wouldn't I wouldn't drag you through that. Jordy is big. Uh, so there's a scene at the 13 minute mark. I know I've just gone off talking about Jordy for a while, but we've got to rewind for a minute because I mentioned the structure of this episode. And this is a great scene. Um, Picard has just come back. He's excited. This is great. Oh my god. And, and even Riker and Troy both comment on how nice it is to see Picard this excited and happy. Two times before this, they have plonked the foreshadowing there. A bit of a power dip when O'Brien was beaming them. And Wesley, who was just like, ah, that's kind of weird. And that's it. Very minor things that are just there so you notice them and then immediately forget them. But then... Picard comes over, everything's happy, they're just, yes, this is great, go ahead and get us out of here. We can't move, huh? Engines aren't responding, huh? We're getting hit by radiation. Power increases is increasing. The construction, I wish I could just go by, like, literally line by line of this scene, because it's poetry. The escalation happens from a visual perspective, from a musical perspective, and from a literal line, spoken word perspective. As they people start to talk, and then they talk in slightly more urgent tones, and then they start to talk, like, right after each other, as the information just starts coming rapid fire, as the situation gets worse and worse and worse and then there's this and the music is just building it starts at um i wrote it down uh 14 minutes and 16 seconds and the music just kind of builds and continues to build in the background as they build up to this moment and it is amazingly tense and we already have context that's the final point that makes the scene so perfect we've seen the consequence of falling for this trap because we've already seen the other vessel Trapped there for a thousand years. Everyone on board desiccated and dead. Unable and powerless to do anything about it. We know what's going to happen as a result of this trap they're in. We know consequence. We know how the characters are reacting to it. We have the visual presentation of their reaction to it. We have the tonal shift, which, which just escalates rapidly. And we have the wonderful music highlighting it. It's a wonderful scene. And it highlights everything I love about Star Trek The Next Generation. I'm dead serious. There is a single scene that, to me, speaks to TNG, and it is this scene. It's, it's technically three scenes. One on the bridge, one with Geordi, one on the bridge. Boom, 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 just like that. Um, but I call it all one scene because it's all part of the same construct, this build-up to the, to the climax. Watch this scene again. I'm, I'm honest. I'm honest to God here. Watch this scene again, please, if you watch these episodes with me or are, aren't. Go watch this bit. It starts at about 13 minutes into the episode. And I mention this because this is the kind of thing that intellectually is certainly dangerous, but is overwhelmingly surpassed by stuff that's happened in later Star Trek. Uh, Enterprise, Voyager, late TNG have plenty of circumstances that are far more dangerous and terrifying than, than this relatively unknown booby trap that they're in. But the combination of everything I said earlier, I'm not going to repeat it again, but all of the different elements gelling together perfectly make this scene, this three scenes, incredibly tense. It just builds that suspense and that, oh, God. And and I was legitimately sitting here just like, oh, you know how much I liked this? This is, this is almost unheard of. I actually, I have, I've only done this like a couple times in this whole rumination series with TNG. I watched this episode before I watched this episode for notes. Just because I wanted to see it again. I love this. Because it makes me care. 
More than anything else, it makes me give a damn about what's going on. And that is what TNG usually does best for me personally. Um, you know, I love DS9. I do, obviously. I, I enjoy Voyager tremendously. I even like about half of Enterprise. But what TNG did that none of those did was take a circumstance and make it work. I know that's a weird thing to comment on, because most people, when they comment on TNG, they talk about the characters and how great the characters were. But th that caring, that, that presentation, is what really sold me on TNG. Uh, pretty much from Season 3 and onwards. Not counting a few problems in Season 7. Anyways, <clears throat> so now I've gushed enough, forgive me. Jordy goes back up. This is why I wanted to wrap around to this point. Jordy has his little thing with Leia Brahms 2.0 and then goes up to the bridge. And there's another nice little tidbit from a uh, script perspective. They don't reiterate expo exposition. I've mentioned before that I have... Uh, hang on a second. There we go. I have a few pet peeves when it comes to writing. Um, you know... The, as you know, and 10,000 years, you know, a lack of understanding of scope. Those just piss me off. But there's a third one that I don't get to mention as often, thankfully, because most of the works I cover don't do this. And that is repetitious padding. How many times in a fictional work have you seen someone enter the scene who doesn't, that character does not know what's going on, but we do. The audience knows what's going on, and then the characters inform the, the new character what's going on. It's purely repetitious because we, the audience, already know everything about this. We already understand all of this perspective. We get where this is coming from. So we're not hearing anything new. Now, there are ways to make this work. But in general, it's just there for padding. It's just there to stretch out an episode or pad out a game or whatever. I can think of several JRPGs in particular that have a really bad problem with constantly reiterating the same information. It's like, okay, I get it. <laughs> I get it. But they avoid that here. Jordy goes up, and then they're already talking about the problem. The problem we know about, and Jordy adds his insight, which we already know about. So we can presume that Jordy info-dumped on them, and they info-dumped on him, and we don't need to be shown that because it's just padding. We already know all that stuff. Good. Good writing. I like that. Um, so... The, the solution they come up with is the idea to move before reaction time. Now, this is where the episode kind of loses me a little bit, because the idea is that this booby trap is so amazingly perfect that it is reacting quicker than the Enterprise D's computer can move. That is damned impressive, if I might be so bold. This is... <laughs> I mean, if you're saying... Because the idea here is Enterprise does something, energy goes to the the aceton relay or whatever it is, and then gets, gets back at radiation and prevents it from happening, right? There's a delay between these actions. Now, that delay is a matter of microseconds, but this is the Enterprise computer, which can move a hell of a lot faster than that. Microseconds are slow to this thing. And the idea that the computer can do this was like, oh, yeah, yeah. Even as a kid, I was like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Of course the computer can do this. Hell, Data could probably do this. Although Jordy says Data couldn't, but that's probably because of physical analog, not digital. If Data just plugged into the machine, I bet he could. But then they show that the computer can't. Now this runs up to some interesting questions, because the way they showcase this is via a simulation. Now I want to stress that word because it's not real. It's a simulation. And with the exact same input and exact same variables, they run the simulation and get different results. 
That is extremely questionable to me. And I know it's a very minor nitpick, but every time I see that bit, I think, how? Let me use a parallel to you. If I run a TAS, which is a tool-assisted speedrun, uh, or superplay if you prefer, that I have recorded, because I've done several in my life, on the exact same software with the exact same input and the exact same ROM and the exact same everything, I will get the exact same response over and over because there's no variables. Nothing is changing the information. It just goes through. It's the exact same. Now, if I was to run that on Bob's computer or Jill's computer or Blue's computer, because she has a computer now but looks like a woman for some reason, you know, I might get different results. But the simulation is running within itself. How exactly does it accommodate the idea of separate variables with exact same variables? It's, it's just confusing to me. More to the point, though, the idea is that the computer can't keep up, which is also confusing to me. And then there's the final point, and this is my final nitpick, I swear. They keep talking about this fatal exposure thing. I'm going to relate this very simply, because the whole idea is they're, get, they're getting bathed in radiation actively. You know, pretty much from the moment when the red alert, uh, or not the red alert hits, but uh, the part where it's like, oh my god, T-minus such and such time to fatal exposure. That means they're actively being hit by deadly radiation. Uh, that's bad. So, to use a parallel, imagine if you are on fire, and there's burning happening, and you just... And you are told by a computer, fatal exposure to fire, T-minus, you know, I don't know, 40 seconds, or whatever time it takes for you to burn to death. You can kind of see why I find the entire idea of fatal exposure amusing, because it's kind of video gamey, right? Like, I'll be fine until I'm at one... Even if I'm at one HP, I'm fine! Up oh, zero HP, thud! Because that's how they treat it. This would make more sense if it was more like the exposure would start happening at that point, but all the construction of the episode makes it clear they're already being exposed. That's already a problem. So that's not what's happening. I don't know, it's just something that kind of bugged me. That's it, that's it, moving on. So, they finally decide to go with the exact opposite. Why don't we turn it all off? Now, this is how this thematically ties into Jordy's plot. Because Jordy's biggest problem is that he's been trying too hard, artificially being what he is not and failing as a result. When Jordy is just himself, well, that's when he gets results. Now, that probably doesn't sound like a direct parallel, but the idea is turn off all the tech because a computer can't do what we, real people, can. And Picard flat out calls it. He says right here, the will to stay alive. A computer does not have the will to stay alive. But we do. And Picard goes and takes the con. I, I, I guess I lied. I have one small nit at the very end. Data, who is super smart, somehow does not predict the strategy that Picard is going to use at the end. Now, it was a good strategy, and credit to the episode, using basically using the gravitational pull to get them out further and quicker. That was actually great. I love that. But you'd think Data would have figured that out instantly. But this is... I feel like that was shoved in to make the episode's point. Data didn't pick up on it for the same reason the computer wouldn't have, because only a living, sentient, sapient machine, like a human, could actually do such a thing like that or predict such a maneuver. I feel like that kind of hinders the episode's point overall. I like going, I like just taking that and throwing it out the window and looking back at Geordi and Picard's core point. Sometimes you just have to be yourself rather than trying to come up with some ridiculously convoluted method. Sometimes the best way out of the finger trap 
is to just ease your way right out of the finger trap. And then they kiss. Mwah. I don't have anything else to add to this episode. Uh, this is a ver very, very good, enjoyable, awesome episode. I hope you enjoyed it if you're watching these with me. I hope you enjoyed me, because I always hope that, and I will see you guys next time. <laughs>